welcome, welcome to those watching online as well. Um, this morning I'm starting a new series uh, called God at Midnight. They are loud. I heard this down, so I heard it was a rumble. God at Midnight. So this series is actually born um, from an article that appeared in Voice of the Martyrs. Um, Voice of the Martyrs has been for decades now um, a publication. Uh, non-profit, but kind of the, the entire focus is telling the story of the persecuted church. Uh, they're born from the story or witness uh, of, of Richard Wormbrandt. Richard Wormbrandt um, is not only the founder of Voice of the Martyr, but he's actually one of the people in the 20th century who suffered in communist Romania. And, and in the, the, the telling of his story, which I want to share a little bit about, kind of breaks the forces of martyrs. But how I got started on this uh, particular God of Midnight thing with Pastor Linda, um, got a publication. I got it too, but she got hers a day early, so you know who they think is a favorite. Uh, not offended at all, right? But she got hers a day early. She's like, you should really do this. I think this will be good. And I was like, this thing's really good. I'm going to hold on to this. And then next day, mine came, and then I felt special. Um, but what's fascinating is in this article, he talks about midnight. And, and I, I loved it because if you've been tracking with us the last couple of years, one of the things you'll hear me primarily, but all of us up here say is like, we should be ambassadors, right? Like, like, like we live in this world that's this, this dark, but we're called to be the light. Uh, but, but, but how do we translate this darkness? How do we hold on to not just the darkness all around us, but what is God wanting us to do, right? And we see darkness in ourselves, we see darkness in the world, we see darkness all around us. What is God wanting us to do? And in this article, Wormbrand actually is going to say, listen, midnight is coming. So the you and God people are supposed to be working at midnight. So darkness is here, darkness is around us, but, but what are we supposed to be doing? And then he takes this to scripture and says, but let's look at how midnight is seen throughout scripture. If you don't know about Wormbrand, like I said, he was a Romanian priest. Um, he was born into a Jewish family, uh, came to salvation in Jesus. And, and it was on fire, right? And a part of, of, of communist Romania, um, he was going to bomb shelters and preaching the gospel, trying to get people to commit their life to Jesus. But that wasn't enough with the, the rise of, of not just communism, but the rise of, uh, of World War II and the imprisonment of Jews. He put it upon himself to, to rescue Jewish people from actual torture, right? Again, there's, there's this idea of midnight might be here, but we as God's people are still called to make a difference, right? And if one priest can say, uh, people are being marginalized, oppressed, and killed, I need to do something, how much more should we when we see the same thing, right? Midnight was there for them, but he still works. And, and needless to say, this got him in a little bit of trouble, right? And the trouble led to imprisonment. And his imprisonment was brutal. You know, one of the things he talked about was that, you know, they confined him to a prison. He was like, oh, prison. Solitary confinement. You're like, well, that's getting worse, right? He claims that they built the prison 12 feet underground. That they intentionally eliminated light sound, right? So even his imprisoners, or I guess what we call them, the jail people, would have special shoes or padding on their shoes so he could never hear when they were coming. So they eliminated light, they put them into the darkness, and again, this story is going to remind us what? Like, darkness is here. What are, we all, what are we actually going to do about it? And so what he said that he trained himself to do is to, to, to stay up in the darkness, right, and to sleep during the day. And part of the reason, by the way, he did that is every night he read himself a sermon. And every night he would give himself that sermon, and he would verbally say it, hoping that his captains would hear it, or maybe someone 
at this time is his voice. And finding his voice becomes the voice of Christians who've been persecuted for over 75 plus to 100 years later. As Christians, as God's people, we're not to fear the darkness. We're to be light in the darkness. We're not to say the world is dark. I ought to give up. We ought to be saying, what is God calling me to do within this darkness around me? It's not enough for us to see that the world is broken, that the world is not as it should be, that darkness is all around us. How are we doing the light? And one Romanian speaks faithful testimony, stories of maybe thousands, tens of thousands of Christians who are going through persecution have now been voiced, have now been given to the rest of us who are not in those situations. And they now have someone who's telling the story. So midnight is coming. But I think the darkness is for all of us, too. Because wherever you are right now, there might be a curve around that road on your way home. When you wake up tomorrow morning, there might be a new challenge that you didn't see, right? I love the word unforeseen. Because I'm like, if I foresee it, I don't want it. But I, it's just like, unforeseen, I love that. Because I'm like, if I foresee it, I don't want it. There might be unforeseen challenges. There might be changes that are coming. Midnight is here. And all of us have to be able to name that. Because we don't have to wait for darkness. We can see, we can feel, we can even know and experience it. But as we go through this series, I want you to think of all these times because when the darkness comes, our God is there with us. When the darkness comes, a God is there in power. And the Christ to God's people is again to not just name the darkness or complain about the darkness, but to actually get to work. God is the one who's there in darkness and power. God is the one who's here in light and mercy. Let's pray. Our Father, God, we thank you so much. That we don't have to deny that our world can be a dark place. That we don't have to be okay with the darkness that's within us, that's around us, that's everywhere that we see. That we don't have to hold it all as if we're strong enough to hold any of it. So God, we thank you for your presence. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for your son. We thank you for your church. We thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for stories in the scriptures that remind us that darkness may be all around us, but there's light in us. They remind us that the world may be broken, but you are God's spirit. They remind us that no matter the darkness, you are the light of the world, you are the light of our lives. You're the one who's working, who's working on us, who's working in us, who's working through us. The holy and precious name. Amen. Our first story this morning um, is going to be Exodus 11. One thing I wrestled over was whether or not to start with this story of darkness or to go back to Genesis, right? Because a lot of times we look at darkness as the big, 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 big. I blame Star Wars for this, right? And this is where you'll know I'm out of my depth. I try to watch one Star Wars. Uh, I don't know if James is here. James had to let me watch one Star Wars. I fell asleep. It was so good, I felt like that's not I had in a long time, right? I didn't realize like how excited I was to see the like, let's watch Star Wars, right? It was great. But I blame Star Wars for this. A lot of us, when we think about light, it's always light versus darkness. 
one of the things that happened in Genesis is that before there was light, there was darkness. So I was wrestling with that and saying that, like, well, well but can we talk about this? Because light didn't exist yet, right? So I was like, you know what? We're still going to make that. God of midnight, it's not God of darkness, right? So the first time we really see the midnight is in this Exodus story. So starting in chapter uh, 11, verse 1, we'll have it for you up front so you can follow there as well. Now the Lord has said to Moses, I will bring one more plane on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people. And Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. So Moses said, This is what the Lord Yahweh says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, to the firstborn son of the female slave who had cast her hands there, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark, and any person or animal, then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, Go, you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. The Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you, so that my wonders will be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go out. In midnight, we believe that part of the earth is farthest from the sky. Uh, and theologians and scholars talk a lot about a spiritual midnight, which is just a departure point from God. And so when we have Israel and Egypt, I think it's, it's helpful to think of Egypt as representing farthest away from God. Why? Because Egypt is the power that is evil. Israel was the people who were confined and enslaved and oppressed. Egypt was an empire, and it begins this critique of God and empire. If you go through the scriptures, you'll see God critiquing our faith in nations, our faith in powerful nations, our faith in military power, and our faith that might is money. Our faith that violence is okay, right? This makes us feel good as Americans. But there's a critique throughout scripture about empire, because God seems to know what we do know. That we will always want to choose empire and power that we can see. That we will always want to think that how we make things right is through violence. So if you go through scripture, you'll see a critique against Egypt, against the Syria, against the Babylonians, against the Romans. And I think if you look even deeper in the life of the prophet, you'll see critique against God's own people, Israel. Because when David is on the throne, they became an empire. The Solomon's on the throne, they became an empire. So God seems to be loving this critique against the power of man, because the power of man seems to be death. To many, oppression. To many, darkness for all. And then in Israel, their power can't be seen. It's hard to see power in the people who are losing, in the people who are marginalized, in the people who are oppressed. For over 400 years, they're in slavery in Egypt, and they're crying out to God, Where is God in this? 
cannot be seen. Because they thought their God could not be seen, but their God could not even care what's going on. Yet as you go through this Exodus story, but before they actually commit to Exodus to leave Egypt, you see that with every single play, God's power shows up. And it's active. Right, so every single one, when I was a kid, I used to read through the plays, and most kids were like, yeah, this is scary. I'm like, this is sexy. Why are we sending frogs everywhere? Why is that? You know what I mean? It was like, God just seems to be like, is he bored? Like, why are we? What God was doing was showing power over creation to us. He said that I'm going to give the Lord Almighty law of our creation, which means everything under my voice is controlled by me. And he's also showing Egypt that I'm power over you, the oppressor. The powerful. And if these gods that you worship, I will show my power over them too. The Nile has the blood. The Egyptians believe that the Nile belongs to Osiris. And that the, 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 the Nile was his bloodstream. And if you study ancient Egypt, you realize that the Nile was not just the bloodstream, but it was the feeding trough of the entire region. And so they worship the Nile, they worship the fire, but God turned it to blood. The frogs I speak of, they represent fertility of, of the God's happy and health. So God says if frogs represent fertility, anyone gets a frog, right? But the mean with the Oprah, you get a frog, you get a frog, we all get a frog. And if you go through the, the, the darkness itself, right? The Egyptians, the most, maybe, I would say the most powerful, but certainly some theologians would say the most uh, worshipped, of these different God wasn't Osiris, it was Brahm. Right? And it's funny because in a lot of, uh, of not just North African, but I think even African American culture, there's been this like, the name Brahm keeps showing up every now and then. So it's fascinating that there's, there's a guy in the NFL and there's Brahm rising Brown, right? There's this thing Brahm keeps showing up because it was seen that the, the sun God was all powerful and was worshipped. So God says that that's your all powerful God who's both worshipped. If you want to worship the sun, let's take the sun away. And even this, the plague and the death of the firstborn represented two gods. I get with the God of birth, then with the God of reproduction. I didn't do enough reading to celebrate what the difference between birth and reproduction. But I think birth is the actual birthing of the baby, reproduction, maybe more fertility. That's my destination, right? But God was again in every single one of these places. And you could pick any one of them. There was a correlating Egyptian God that people worshipped, that people thought was powerful. And God was like, actually, no. Not at all. I am the Lord Almighty. Remember what we learned about Yahweh a couple years ago? Yahweh doesn't just mean I'm the God Almighty. But it means I'm the God who's here. I'm the God who loves you. I'm the God who's going to work together for your good. And if after 400, maybe 430 years of crying out, where is God? God shows up in a power of fullness. And all of this leads over to the Passover, which is a night of power and mercy at midnight. That's what talked a little bit about in her, her call to worship. But, but a lot of uh, the Jewish people believe that midnight is when one day ends and another begins, right? So for them, the day starts when the sun goes down. But also, throughout the first suffering, we'll talk about how midnight represents major change in life experience. And I think you can combine those two when you get to the Passover story, because a day is ending. Power and might of Egypt is ending. Egypt's power over Israel is ending. But it's also going to be the major change in life experiences. We do this not just symbolically, but also practically. A parent, when the first kid goes off to school, 
That's the midnight. Because up until that point, you've loved your baby, you've probably been protecting your baby, but now you actually have to trust that someone else is going to watch over your baby. That's a midnight. College student. You go through high school. You go through college. And for the most part, you do well. Until about a week or two before graduation, and you start thinking to yourself, this is midnight. What's up? I don't know. You might actually be blessed and touched by God and have a job ahead of you. But what's a job? Right? What is this whole thing they call responsibility? Right? Like, I don't get to sleep in and go to class at 12. You want me to get a 9 a.m.? What's wrong with you? That's a midnight. Or for those of us who are blessed, right? With, 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 with being able to retire. That too is a midnight. If you don't believe it's a midnight, talk to a couple. Well, one person is retired and the other person is still working. Like, talk to them. It's just a big conversation, you know? It's just like, what did you do today? Well, you know, I had to go to work. What do you do? I don't know what he did. He just sleeps all day, does nothing, right? But the midnight is in that life game and trying to figure out what is this new normal? What is the new normal that I send my baby off to school? What is the new normal that I go into the world? What is this new normal when I put my whole life based on work and career, and now that's gone, and I have to actually face myself? What is this new midnight? And I think as this is happening in Egypt with the Israelites, that's when God shows up. In our passage, God speaks to Moses. And he says, Moses, essentially, this is the one. We've gone through denial. We've gone through frogs and boils and darkness and cattle. But Moses, this is the one, the big one. This is, I'm going to do this, and this is when Pharaoh will finally set you free. And you can imagine, as awful and as terrible as this is for Egypt, you can imagine that Moses is like, like, if you had to keep going, at least I know the place is splendid, right? And, and I don't know about you. Some of us get frustrated if we have to say something twice. Right? Now imagine you have to say something nine times. And every time you have concrete evidence of your God working and you're asking for the same thing, and it's not happening. What's happening to me is that before the last play, you have chapter, or verse 2 and verse 3, where God says to the people, I want you to go to your neighbor. But that makes it sound a little bit happier than it is, right? I want you to go to the enslavers. I want you to go to the people who not only enslaved and oppressed you, but who may have turned a blind eye to your suffering. And I want you to ask them for some gifts for the world. And I think about this, and I think about this in light of this country, and I think about on the night of the Emancipation Proclamation of enslaved African Americans going to the enslavers and like, listen, God has set us free. You need to give us some stuff. We have started a new life together, right? Or I think about uh, World War II and after the, the, the Jewish people are, are, are not destroyed. And after that, Germany actually tries to do something called reparations. What's in America? That's a bad word, right? The idea that someone can work for 400 years for free and need to actually give them something for that, that's crazy. That's a, that's a wild thought, right? But in Germany, they actually paid reparations to the surviving members of the Jewish people. One of my best friends who I talked about Passover this week, um, because he grew up a Messianic Jew, his father, or grandfather, I'm sorry, survived World War II and torture and punishment. They got reparations from Germany. 
trajectory of his life. My friend Jason, if you see him, he just looks like a light-skinned black man. So when we talk about American reparations, he's like, this is wild to me. That Germany can do this for a short amount of time. And America did this for hundreds of years. And won't think there's something they ought to do to make it right. And what's fascinating to me is that in this story, God has the audacity to tell the enslaved people to go to your oppressors and ask them to bless you. And they did. I don't know if that's more dangerous, right? They did. Now, I can say, well, maybe it's because they were finally terrified. Or maybe it was like, hey, listen, if I saw these very plays, you can have the TV. You know, just knock yourself out. Whatever you want, help yourself to breathe, right? But it's deeper than that. Because I think even though Israel didn't know, God knew that when you leave everything that you know, and you go to start up a new life, the help is actually scary. And so God is going to bless them through their oppressors to have something to take with them. So God says to Yahweh, says the most essential one, go tell the people to go and ask for not just reparations, but a blessing that they would leave being blessed by the Egyptians. And then Moses gets the message, and he goes to Pharaoh. And he goes to Pharaoh, and he says, What? At midnight, Pharaoh, judgment will come. All the firstborn, from the firstborn of Pharaoh on down, to the firstborn of the enslaved woman, to the firstborn of the cow, everyone is going to die, Pharaoh. And every house in Egypt will be touched. And all the Egyptians will have this loud cry that's never been heard and never will be heard again. What's interesting about that is Moses, or the writer of the Pentateuch, the writer of Exodus, in writing, at least in Hamlet, they talk about four things, right? Characters who kind of represent each other but have a different, you know, flip, right? So you'll have like Laertes and, 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 and you guys are looking like, what is he talking about, right? The point is, you'll have people who have a lot of similarities and a little bit of difference, right? And I think the writer is actually doing a foil here because he's saying for 430 years, Israel has cried and no one has cried. But when God moves in power against the oppressor, when God moves in power against those who are hurting God's people, when God moves in power against the enslavers, when God moves in power against people who are doing evil, every single person in that land will hear it and feel it. And that's what happens. But he's saying also to the people of Israel, the God's people, at midnight, mercy will come. I think it's fascinating that like, there's not even a dog among the Israelites was bought. I don't have a dog. I personally don't believe in pets. I know they exist. That's great. God bless you and your pets. But like, that's not even my world. But I know that some dogs, if they even think there's a pet they bought. If they even think there's a sound a mile down the road, they bark. If you just pop in and come home, they bark. If you dare bring a stranger like me who doesn't necessarily think that's a good, they bark, bark, right? But I think it's very beautiful. You know, we are saying, at least in my head, that God says, even in the midst of all this suffering, of all this pain, of all this trauma, of all this darkness, in your home, there will be Peace enough that not even a dog will bark. Why? 
because I want all the people to know that I have chosen you. That Pharaoh will bow and set you free. And then I was reading this, uh, I was in the office a couple of days ago, and I was like, really, y'all, isn't this weird that that Pharaoh gets angry? But like, you would think that nine plagues and four, like, it's just like, why is he angry now? And it was Dr. Linda who was just like, well, think about it. He has had time and time and time and time to actually let the people go. And the suffering that happened has happened as he gets added on top of each other, of each other, of each other. And so the pain he feels when the angel of death comes isn't just the pain of losing the firstborn, but perhaps it's the pain of knowing that I could have prevented it with my ego. My hold of power, my desire to be supreme, has led to even more death. What's interesting is when Yahweh goes to Moses and says that, you know, Pharaoh, in all these plays, didn't really He may not have believed that if you would listen to me, you would see that I will come through. And what's fascinating to me is at the end here, verse 9, Yahweh says to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in you. Because we think about why all these plagues, why all this suffering, why did Pharaoh refuse, why did God even just be quiet in Pharaoh's heart? God did it so that the people would believe, and not just Israel, but even the Egyptians. A little subtle, not so subtle reminder that when God saves his people, he's looking at the world. When God saves you, he's looking at what you can do with your life to help your sister and brother and your neighbor too. When God rescues you, it's not just for you. And so others may see and hear your story. It's why 75 plus years later, we can talk about Richard from this. It's why thousands of years later, we can tell the story of Jesus Christ. When God rescues us, it's not just for us. So these plagues are the tools to deliver Israel. So Egypt, the God of Yahweh, and you may have Ra and Osiris and Hapi and Hegel and so many more, but I am one, and I'm more powerful than all of them. Later on, or earlier on, the Exodus narrative, the Moses, God, he said to Moses, I'm doing this. To convince them of their sin. It's to remind us that those of us in power can sometimes not only oppress and harm, but we may not be aware of it. So that when the judgment and punishment of God comes, it doesn't come just because we sin, it comes to make us aware of our sin. And so these plagues are the tools to deliver Israel to show Egypt's uh, power to convict them of their sins. And then you get to the Passover. And I, I talked to my friend Jason, and I talked to my friend John. I was so interested in that. I thought, oh, I wonder how Jewish people still hold on to the Passover. You know, I wonder how Messianic Jews hold on to the Passover. Anybody else, I wonder how Egyptians view the Passover. And I realized that for my limited scope, I view it through Exodus 11 and 12. And so what's interesting about the Passover is that to this day, the Jewish people hold on to this story of something that was established by God. They hold on to the time that was, the restrictions and the rituals. 
and they remember. They remember that night in Egypt. They remember that it wasn't just the same place. And my mom said, yeah, some, some Jewish people, they look at this like a get-out-of-jail-free guy. You know, like, like God, please, that's the rest of us. You know, they're great. But he said, if you look at it, if you look at even the restrictions, for example, right? He tells us to have a limit. And if you had not enough people for a land but couldn't afford a land, you would have to close to what? Go to a neighbor and break bread together. So there's something beautiful here in the sense that when God is saving, He's not saving just individually. He's inviting communities. He's inviting people to break bread together. He's inviting people to come together and believe. And so my friend Jason said he went to a Passover Savior. And it was a couple weeks ago, and he hadn't thought about this for years. But as they sat around the Passover Savior, as they went through the ritual, as they ate a course of the meal and another course of the meal and a course of the meal, they recited scripture, they recited blessings, they remembered what God had done. And I thought about that. You know, we have a little bit of traditions in our house, but we don't have anything that we say, this is a time where we will remember what God has done. And every single thing on this table was how that started. And every single person around this table would say a blessing about that story. And then some of us around this table would say a prayer that attends to God for that story. But Jason also pointed out that as a messianic Jew, the Passover reminds them of Jesus. God be even more so. Remember what John said when Jesus walked in the right? Behold, the land of God. The of the world. This is the land of our blemish. You know, I know that we talked about last week, right? On uh, uh, um, the last supper, we were gathered to not just have the last meal together, but to what? To celebrate Passover. What a beautiful scene that must have been. Yeah, I, I feel like I critique, at least I feel like I'm critiquing the disciples a lot lately. But how amazing must it have been? When they're sitting around that table with Jesus, remembering that night in Egypt, and it dawned upon them, oh my goodness, Jesus gave us the You don't just have to remember what happened on that dark night. You don't just have to fear the dark night that's ahead of us. You know that God is working for our good. And you know the story. That they were to fill the land and, and put the blood on the doorpost. The word in the Hebrew is Pesach. And it's a fascinating word. I love Hebrew because about every major word in Hebrew is like this umbrella word, right? And, and, and I think even language is beautiful by God because there's an intentionality, right? But the, the, the word Pesach literally has this three different meanings, right? To protect, to cleanse, to protect the Jews. And so when you think back to Egypt, you think back that they put the blood stain on the doorpost. That was a sign that they were protected. It was a reminder that the blood isn't just about death, but the blood can redeem the substance. When they put that blood on the blood post, it was a sign that this house is clean, that this house has been cleansed. And when they put that sign over the doorpost, it was a reminder that the land has been killed so that they can be saved. And that's what I want you to hold on to in this video. 
sit and think about how many Egyptians may have died that night. It's a lot. And I don't want us to forget and, and think only of our salvation or the salvation of God's people without holding the, the heaviness and the darkness. And yes, you can say it's because Pharaoh was stubborn. Because Egypt was evil. And people were oppressed. And this is God's judgment. I want us to remember that in midnight, we as God's people ought to look inside and look up and see the light of God. Because after all of God's fucking work in his place, he just still did not see. Which begs the question us, after all that God has done for you, how can you not see? It may not be played, I tell you what can play. But of all the roller coasters you've been on, all the highs, all the lows, all the struggles, all the challenges, all the darkness you've waded through or suffered through, after all that God's been through you, all that God's been with you, and all you've been through, do you not see God's mighty power? And I think the also the message for us is that darkness may be here. But it's not inevitable. It's one thing to say, night's going to come. Right? It's another thing to say, I'm going to close the blinds. And that time, I'm going to cut off all the lights. And that time, I'm going to close my eyes. And then I'm going to say, why is it so dark? We cannot continue to march into darkness. Just because it's going to come or it's an inevitable thing. Right? And so I think it reflects upon our lives. At what point are we closing the curtains to God's light and shining through? At what point, instead of being a city on a hill, the lamp on the sand, are we setting off the lamp of God and the light that's within us? And at what point are we closing our eyes and they're complaining that we cannot see God? Yes, because of sin, judgment is coming. Yes, it's darkness. Darkness is pain. My sisters and brothers, I pray that for all of us, God's Spirit would empower us to see. God's Word would help us to listen. And God's people, the church, your sisters and brothers, here around the world in history, I pray that they may inspire you to listen, to hear, to submit. Because even at Passover, even at midnight, mercy is here. Life is light. Life is peace. And the way we know that is we serve Yahweh, the God who loves us, the God who works hard for us, the God who is merciful, the God who is righteous, the God who is light, the God who is indeed our waymaker. Amen? Let's invite up our worship team. We're going to close with our final call. You're saying that song, Waymaker. Light in the darkness, tell us what you are. But as we sing this song, I want you to take some time to think about where you are in life right now. To spend some time thinking about where are you closing the curtains of God's life and shining through? Where in your life did you turn off the light that you can no longer see? Where in your life did you close your eyes to ignore either the suffering or marginalization of people? Or if you close your eyes and you can't see God, ask the Spirit to empower you to be bold enough, to be strong enough, to open, to look up. I don't invite any of the pastors in the room to be up front. We'd love to pray for you for anything, maybe in response to the service or response to something you've got going on. 
But on the night of Passover, judgment came to sit in mercy. Darkness was all around them. But praise God that even in the darkness of dark, his light shone through. Amen? Let's stand and sing together. Thank you. 
You weren't just a substitute for us. You're the one who stood in our place so that we can come home, so that we can find home in you, so that we can go out into this world with your message and your love. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that through this midnight, we can rely on you. We can see you. We can feel you. We can experience you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Amen. God bless you all.